Let's, uh, let's read a Psalm of David, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. This was the reading of God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now, Lord, and we thank you for the words of the psalmist. We see here that the Lord says to my Lord, that would be David speaking, that would be the Lord Jesus saying to his Father, now that would, that's the other way around, Lord, it would be the, the Father saying to the Lord Jesus, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool of your, at your feet or for your feet. Lord, we praise you that you are sovereign. You are above all things. Lord, we thank you that you have made Christ the head of all things. Lord, we'll see that even in our passage of Scripture this morning. I'm constantly amazed, my Lord, how... You orchestrate these things even on a Sunday morning where we're reading Psalm 110 and it fits perfectly with what we'll be learning from your scripture in Ephesians 1. Lord, you are a good God who cares for us. Lord, we confess as a people that we are a sinful people, that, Lord, we even in our sinfulness because of what Christ has done, because of, of his victory over sin and death, that we can approach you, we can approach you in confidence. We can come to your throne in confidence, knowing, Lord, that you will uh, give us the help we need in time of need. We praise you. We thank you. Lord, you are worthy of all honor, worthy of all praise. Lord, I thank you for this church and praise you for this church. Thank you that we can come here and, and gather together and that we, Lord, are a, a statement to the principalities and powers of the victory of Christ, of the glorious nature of, of our Lord Jesus Christ and that he is victorious over sin and death, that he came to this earth and he walked this earth without sin, sinless, that he went to the cross and he died for our sins, shedding blood, innocent blood, so that he might redeem for himself a people for his own possession, so that he might have all honor and glory. And he conquered the grave he no longer lays in that tomb. But according to this psalm, he sits at your right hand, Father, in triumph. He sits in, at your right hand, having triumphed over all things. And we'll see that come to fruition, Lord, in, in the future. As you reign, as your kingdom as you, your kingdom comes, we thank you, Lord, that we now can be a part of your church. And we thank you that in the future we'll be a part of your kingdom. We praise your holy name. Father, we want you to get all the glory. 
We want you to get all the praise. We proclaim, Lord, Christ as our head. Christ as head of the church. Christ as the head of all things, whether on heaven or on earth. We praise your holy name, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You could turn to hymn number 10. Hymn number 10, Ferris, Lord Jesus. Sing together. Ferris, Lord Jesus, ruler of all Just is satisfied. 
eyes to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me behold him there the risen lamb my perfect spotless righteousness the great unchangeable i am the king of glory and of grace one with himself i cannot die my soul is purchased with his blood my life is hid with christ on high with christ my savior and my god with christ my savior and my god you may be seated Take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We are returning to our study in Ephesians, and as Ed told you, we will be, this will be our last Sunday for a few weeks in Ephesians. We're going to have, as he mentioned, uh, three different preachers come in, um, well, three different preachers that are going to preach for us over the next six weeks, and then I'm going to fill in uh, with three different sermons on Membership here at Grace Bible Church and um, baptism and also church discipline, I think, is the three that I've landed on uh, that I think will be helpful for the church to understand where we stand doctrinally on those three issues and hopefully clear up anything that has a lack of clarity in regard to those things. So I hope you'll look forward to our time together this summer uh, as we... As we go through these summer months, it's always hit or miss, you know, with who's here and who isn't and, and how, that, how that works. So in order to give consistency, we decided to go ahead and, and take this six weeks. And that way, when we start back up in August, I'll just do a quick review of, of Ephesians and we'll launch back into Ephesians chapter 1. Well, today, uh, we are continuing in verses 3 through 14. Uh, the, I would, would uh, just draw your attention specifically to verses 7 uh, the end of 7, that is, through verse 10. Let me pray for us. We pray for us and we'll get started in our sermon. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. Lord, I pray uh, that you would just settle my mind and heart, settle all of our minds and hearts here, that we would have a um, wonderful time that there would be clarity in your word. Father, what an important scripture that we're going through this morning as we, as we focus on the Lord Jesus, his glorious nature, who he is. Father, we thank you again. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, my wife, Angie, and I, we enjoy, we enjoy watching television shows for relaxation. My kids are probably laughing right now because we, we have these shows that we watch, and we watch them almost religiously, I hate to say, sometimes. We especially like BBC programming, we, uh, because they seem, the BBC seems to excel in period dramas, and, and they also do well in character development, which we love, to, we love to see, we love to enjoy. I thank the Lord for those little mercies of being able to sit on the couch for an hour with my wife and enjoy a, a finely crafted, well-written drama. I'm very thankful for streaming services like Amazon, which allow for us to, to pick a time. We can decide you know, a time to go and, and, and sit down and watch those shows. Angie and I both enjoy a good murder mystery. We're drawn into 
the mental gymnastics of thinking through who might have committed the murder and who's innocent. We, we want to see the, the innocent person exonerated, and we want to see the, the guilty punished. There's one show, show that is, that we, we have enjoyed, which seems to excel at this genre. In this show, the opening scenes are always little snippets of each character as they enact the spectacle which surrounds the murder. The scenes are set to dramatic music, and so it heightens the senses as you watch this, these, uh, these scenes flash in front of you. Each scene makes, actually makes very little sense as you, as you watch it, as it dramatically flickers across the screen, and even when taken together, even as a, as a group, it's hard to understand exactly what's ha- going to happen in the episode. Uh, the show itself generally follows a couple, a couple of investigators uh, that work through the, the mystery that is set before them. One of the characters is an old-school copper who likes to see it, who tells it as, calls it, that is, as he sees it. And the other is a young man who tends to get in trouble because, because he tends to be ahead of everybody, and he tends to see things in a different fashion. It makes the show very interesting. And as each show continues, progresses, it's, you become keenly aware that the obvious answer, the obvious answer to the murder is never or rarely the right answer, right? They want it. It's a mystery. It's they're wanting to reveal this mystery, and it's a, there's twists and turns. By the end of the program, the young copper usually has the mystery all figured out. And as the final, ex- and as the final explanations are given, the opening scenes begin to fit together. The opening scenes begin to make complete sense. They begin, begin to fit together hand and glove, if you will. The mystery has been fully revealed. Well, beloved, the Bible is similar in this fashion. The Bible is very similar in this fashion. In the opening scenes, we are shown a flash of paradise, pure and pristine, yet not quite all that it could be. We see the man and the woman, again, created good, yet untested and vulnerable. We see the sharp flash of evil as the serpent whispers his lies to Eve. We gasp as the man disobeys God's word and and eats the forbidden fruit. We can almost hear the words of God as he, the voice of God as he pronounces judgment, cursing the serpent, childbirth, and the ground. Yet, we're given great pause. Because he doesn't curse the man and the woman. As a matter of fact, he promises them redemption. He promises that he will save them. He promises a redeemer, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And this redeemer would be one of them. He would be a son of man. God even models this redemption by by slaying animals and shedding their blood. He He provides animal skins to cover their nakedness. The man and woman were naked and unashamed. Now they they are naked and exposed to a cruel and dark world, a fallen and cursed world. We see these scenes flash by, but we can't quite put them together to form a coherent understanding. We don't know exactly what's going on, but we see these scenes pass by as we try to understand the mystery of God's actions. As the rest of the Bible begins to unfold, to reveal these mysteries, we we must watch closely and and study the clues to follow what God is truly doing in the world. (coughs) Throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah, the, the Son of Man, this Redeemer, is prominent, yet he remains a shadow. He, he, he makes a few profound appearances, like when he appeared in Judges 13 as the angel of the Lord. He does this on various occasions. Genesis 18 is another example. But by and large, this Messiah, this Redeemer, is hidden from plain view. The question is, and the question that the Old Testament saints ask, is who is he? And what is he doing in the world? We know that we've been promised redemption through him. We know that the the man and woman were specifically promised redemption through him. 
but who is he? And what does this redemption even look like? And as the story progresses, God reveals more and more, yet the mystery deepens. Theories about him abound. Many believe that he will be a political messiah. Even today, if you listen to Ben Shapiro, the other, a few weeks ago he was, he, he was interviewing a Christian uh, there at, on, on his television show, or, or the show that he has on Sundays, and, and he spoke of the messiah being a political messiah. That's what they expected, was he co- somebody to come in and sweep sweep in and, and take care of them politically and take over and, and, and give them independence. One who would come and deliver his people from their physical oppressions. Yet they missed the prophecies that he would come to suffer on behalf of his people. Clear prophecies, Isaiah 53 being one of them, that he would come to suffer. So when he is revealed in his appearing... His incarnation, most missed him altogether because they didn't understand who he was. They didn't understand what he came to do truly. He didn't fit their political understanding. So he was rejected by his people because he claimed to be, he claimed to be God. Therefore, they accused him of blasphemy and they, they accused him of doing things in the name of Beelzebul and the power of Beelzebub. But, beloved, throughout it all, his purpose for coming never changed. It never changed. He came to redeem his people. And let me say something else. We mentioned the curse. He came to reverse the curse, to crush the head of the serpent of old, the devil. The mysteries that the Old Testament saints longed to see and understand had been gloriously revealed and summed up in the life of the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Old Testament saints longed to see this. This is summed up really in Luke 2.25 where we see a man whose name was Simeon, Simeon, that is, This man was righteous and devout, and he was looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. I mean, he was expectantly looking for this coming Redeemer, this Messiah. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not see death before he saw the Lord. The Lord's Christ, that is, the Messiah. And he came into the the temple at the same time they brought this child, Jesus, and, and they, they brought him in to carry out the custom of the law. And, they, and he took Jesus into his arms, and he blessed God, and he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, because I, my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen this Redeemer. You know what else he said? He says this, which you have prepared in the presence of all people. This Redeemer, this Lord Jesus, this Messiah wasn't just for the Jewish people. But he was a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And he was the glory of, your, of his people, he is Israel. That, that's amazing that he came to not just Israel... He came to all people. So we see then the beginning of the revelation of the mystery of God. Christ's coming then is the point of inflection for all of history. The Messiah had come and he was to be revealed to all mankind. And in his life, death, and resurrection, God would reveal his plan which which had been prophesied by Moses and the Old Testament prophets. So all those scenes that flashed before us throughout the Old Testament, all those scenes that we see began to make sense in the Messiah, in this Redeemer. But after Christ's death, his church was left to struggle, struggling to understand why Christ had come as he did. 
They struggled to comprehend why they had been left to suffer for his sake. They had, they had a difficult time understanding their purpose, considering that they still... Now get this. The church had a difficult time understanding that they still lived, that while they still lived in a fallen world which looked nothing like the God's glorious kingdom. The Messiah had come. Why not the kingdom? Why were they still suffering? And what was their purpose in this world as they waited for Christ to come again? Now, for these past few weeks, we've been studying this letter to the Ephesians, which was written by the Apostle Paul for the purpose, the express purpose of encouraging the church to remain faithful in Christ. Paul recognized then the importance of strengthening the church. He wanted them to, to understand. He wanted them to understand their purpose. He wanted them to, to be able to carry out the mission of making disciples of all the nations, the mission that Christ had given them. Paul recognized that they needed to be strengthened. And, and Ephesus itself was incredibly strategic to this plan. It was incredibly strategic to the spread of the gospel and, the, and, and again, making disciples by planting churches to the, to the west of where they, where they lay. Therefore, it was strategic in Paul's mind to strengthen them, to be able to strengthen the existing churches with right doctrine. So this particular letter is then part of Paul's strategic plan for the churches for strengthening these churches. Now we find ourselves this morning in the midst of Paul's extended praise of the Trinity for what they had accomplished, in, or what the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had, had accomplished in redeeming a people for God's own possession, the church, the body of Christ. And today we come to the climax, what it would be the climax of this praise. Now, last week we saw that, the, that God the Son has blessed you by redeeming you. Now, what I want you to be aware of is that while this passage obviously has individual implications, it has an even greater corporate significance. In other words, God chose to pay the purchase price to redeem you from your slavery to sin. And for that, you should rejoice. But even greater than that, and I believe many churches, many people miss this, even greater that, than that, he chose to make you part of the body of Christ. Because it's the body of Christ that, it, that he is doing his work in, through the body of Christ, that he's doing the, his work in this world. Beloved, you are his. You have been transformed. And as such, there's nothing that is the same for you. You have been redeemed to be a part of His people, a people for His own possession. He did this so that He might get the praise and the glory for, which, for the grace by which He has graced us. In other words, He has abundantly rained down His favor upon us so that He might get all the glory. You know, a few weeks ago, my yard, and I'm sure yours as well, was burnt and dried in desperate need of life-giving rain. Over these past few weeks, God has sent an abundance of rain. And my yard is just blown up. Now, unfortunately, now I, it has to be mowed more often, but you get the picture. In similar fashion, God has rained down His grace upon us and upon you, and He has made us and made you alive in Christ, and He has raised us, He has raised you, and He has seated you in the heavenly places in Christ. He's done this for us as individuals. But there's an even greater significance corporately. Because as a whole, and I want you to get this, as a whole, we are the spoils of Christ's victory over sin and death. Did you get that? We are the spoils of Christ's victory over sin and death. And we must see this little gathering, we must see this little gathering of God's people as proof that God truly is fulfilling His promise in the garden to crush the head of the serpent and to reverse the curse. 
you see Christ, our Lord, the head of the church. He is the conquering hero. He is worthy of all praise. Now this brings us to our first point today, which is the third point in this passage. God the Son has blessed you by revealing His mysteries. He's blessed you by revealing His mysteries. Now I've already alluded to this in the, in the introduction and in the review. But let, me, let me read Ephesians 4, 8, or 4, actually the end of 7 through 12. I'm sorry, the end of 8. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Now Paul starts by saying, in all wisdom and insight, there's some disagreement whether this phrase actually fits with the, what precedes it or what comes after. But we have to remember that as we go through this passage, again, I've said it several times, this passage is one long sentence in the Greek. Therefore, Therefore, there must be some transitions in the text to let the reader know that Paul has made a transition in thought. Now, I think that this is one of those transitions. I'm convinced then, I'm convinced, you may not be, but I am, that he meant for this phrase to attach both to the preceding thought and the upcoming thought. Let me me say it another way. It makes both both sense both ways it forms then a transition in the sentence. He did the same thing. I don't know if you noticed. He did the same thing in verses 4 and 5 where he says, in verses 4 and 5, if you look back at it, he says this, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. But then he goes on to say he predestined us. But if you look at it, in love fits with he predestined us. So which is it? I believe it's both. I believe there's a, there's a hinge in the text. There's a transition in the text. He, he, he says that we would be holy and blameless in love, and that he also in love predestined us to adoption. And as such, again, it forms this hinge in the text. And I think he's doing the same thing in the, the current verses. In the phrase that we're, we're dealing with back in verse 8, he says, in all wisdom and insight. Therefore, I I believe that Paul is highlighting the wisdom of God for what he has done in Christ, both in the redemption of sinners, what came before, and in the revelation of the mystery of his will, what comes after. Now, I need to say something about the concept of the word wisdom, the the word translated wisdom. It's the theoretical or practical knowledge required for skillful living. According to Proverbs, true wisdom is only apparent in those who truly fear the Lord. In Proverbs 9.10 it says, The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. In the New Testament, James says, in James 1.5, that we must ask God for wisdom. As we're dealing with difficulties in life, trials in life, we must ask God for wisdom. Therefore, God then is the source of wisdom that we fear him and we <coughs> we fear him and we trust him and we ask him and he gives us the wisdom that we need in order to live. Paul, the apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22 that Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and what? The wisdom of God. Therefore, Christ crucified on a cross, Christ dying and redeeming His people, 
is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I believe then that that's Paul's point here in Ephesians 1. A crucified Messiah, a crucified Redeemer is a stumbling block for Jews and its foolishness for Gentiles. Yet to us who are being called, it is God's manifold wisdom. And it is by His wisdom and His understanding that God has accomplished all of these things. You see, God not only has the wisdom that we need to navigate this life, He has the wisdom that is needed to redeem a people for His own possession. And He has understanding that we do not have or we do not possess outside of His revealing it to us. Paul goes on to say, if you look at your text in verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. He has revealed something that was not already known and certainly not easily attained. But the question is, excuse me, the question is what has He revealed to us? Look at your text, the mystery of His will. Now, I've alluded to this earlier. It refers to something hidden in ages past, hidden in God and unable to be unraveled, unable to be understood through uh, human intervention. Paul tells the church that these mysteries have been revealed. Later in Ephesians 3, if you want to turn there, in verses 3 and 4, Paul refers to this as the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the Messiah. This mystery, which was not made known to the sons of men, was made known to Paul, having been revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. What is this, Paul, what is this mystery specifically? What is it? that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, Paul says that the mystery is that God made Jews and Gentiles fellow partakers of the promise to crush the head of the serpent and overcome the curse. And that he would establish his church made up of those who are not Jew and Gentile, but a new creation. A new creation. They're new creatures in Christ. They identify with Christ. Now this was a mystery from the beginning, yet it was God's will from the beginning. Clearly, Paul was incredulous that he was given the opportunity to preach the riches of Christ. If you look at Ephesians 3.8, he says this, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Verse 10, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why do, you, why do I say that we are a testament to those rulers and authorities as we gather together as new creations in Christ? We show them that Christ is victorious over them. We make known Christ's victory. We make known Christ's victory to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Back in Ephesians 1, Paul goes on to say this was all according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. This was according then to God's good pleasure. He made known to us his will in Christ according to his good pleasure, which he pur purposed in Christ. Howard, Howard Honer, the commentator, says it this way. The purpose of the Father was to be effected in Christ. Christ was the basis and the goal of that mystery. This was the secret of God's will that could not be unraveled by human ingenuity or study. Let me just, let me just say it this way. 
you and I, God reveals himself both in creation and in his scriptures, right? General revelation, special revelation, right? We could study creation for the rest of time. And the only thing that study would yield is that God exists. That's all we can know, that he exists. But God has graciously revealed himself in a person. Who is that person? Jesus. My kids, we always, we did some catechism when, when they were young. We'd ask them questions, and when, you know, when they were really young, they'd just say, Jesus. That was the answer to every question. Well, actually, it is the answer to every question, just not specifically sometimes. Listen to the Apostle John in John 1.16. For his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the, the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. We understand who God is through the revelation of the Lord Jesus. He has explained Him. All that we know then of God, about God, has been revealed in the person of Christ. And we cannot know Him outside of Jesus Christ. That's how He's chosen to reveal Himself. Jesus Himself exclaimed, and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, we hear that verse said many times, right? It's a, it's a, it's a verse that we recite. But he goes on in, in verse 7. That's John 14, 6. He goes on in verse 7 and says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Why do they know him and have seen him? Because they know and have seen Jesus, who has explained him, who has revealed him. Paul says in Colossians 1, For it is the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, in Christ, that is, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Sounds very familiar, right? Well, Paul goes on in Ephesians 1.10, if you look back, and he writes this in the NAS, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time. That's a mouthful. The ESV simply translates this verse as a plan for the fullness of time. Now, I believe this captures Paul's intention, that is, the ESV, that is a bit better than the NAS. In other words, this was God's plan all along. Nothing has changed. Nothing has caught him by surprise. According to Paul, according to Paul, God had God planned all these things in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. And in his sovereignty, he has brought his plan to full fruition and will continue to do so until he has brought everything to full consummation. And that would be in Christ. When, when God has fully reversed the curse and fully established Christ overhead, head over all things. But what we want to understand is, is that this was God's plan all along. Nothing has changed. This was God's plan from the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, that is. Look at the text. He says that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. It's hard to know exactly Paul's point and when he says summing up of all things in Christ. There are three options. The phrase could mean that God has made all things to make sense in relation to the person of Christ. I mean, just let me give you a quick analogy. Have you ever put together a child's puzzle with big pieces, right? You've got the big pieces of puzzle. The pieces are so big 
that the puzzle doesn't make complete sense until you place that final piece, and then you see the full picture. And so it could be that Paul is saying that, that Christ is that full picture, or he completes the picture, he sums up all things. Or Paul could have had the idea of renewal. And if that's, if that's his nuance here, then all things in heaven and earth, after they had been plunged into ruin by, in, in, into sin and death, are renewed by the coming of Christ and his, by his redemption. Now, while these are both very true, both very true, that, that Christ does sum up all things in the sense that he completes all things, and that he does, that he does will renew all things, I don't think either are actually Paul's point here. I think the idea seems to be that, that Christ, in the fullness of time, has been exalted so as to be appointed as the ruler or head over all things in heaven and on earth, including the church. And this understanding then would consider take into consideration that Paul over and over throughout the entire book of Ephesians, letter to the Ephesians, has, has repeatedly made Christ's exaltation and his reign a theme of the, of the letter. And, by the way, it seems to best fit, this seems to best fit the definition of the word, that he would be head, made head over all things. Things in the heavens, things on the earth, this is all inclusive, nothing excluded. He has been made head over the physical and spiritual realms. Later in this chapter, Paul says this in verse 20. You can look there if you'd like. Paul says this, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also the one to come. And listen to this in verse 22. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So Paul is clearly saying, Paul is clearly saying that, that God has made Christ the head of all things, including the church. And he has given Christ to the church. Beloved, the centrality of Christ then is clear. It's so clear that even unbelievers, if they're honest with themselves, would admit this. Listen to this by H.G. Wells, who's, an, who's a historian, not a believer. He says this. <laughs> I'm, an, I'm, an histo- I'm, I'm an historian. I am not a believer. But I conf- must confess as, confess as a historian that, his, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the center or the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history, end quote. That's, that's an unbeliever proclaiming the centrality of Christ over all of history. Beloved, He is, Jesus Christ is the most dominant figure in all of history. We don't need H.G. Wells to tell us that. Beloved, this is the Christ you serve. This is the Christ we serve. He has been given all authority over heaven and over earth. Paul writes in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God the Father. Now you might be asking, what does this have to do with my life? It's an understandable question. Especially understandable if we just leave this at the academic. If I just get up here and I teach you this, and then you leave and it doesn't have any effect on your life. But this is much more than academic. This changes everything if you truly believe it. 
if you truly live your life according to this truth. Brethren, if this is true, and I believe that it is, this then is the most important truth in the world. Christ has been made head over all things. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess the name of Christ. You see, our status in Christ means much more than anything else. Beloved, it means much more than getting a promotion at work. It means much more than your status in this world, whatever that is. It means much more than your health, good or bad. Your status in Christ, who you are in Christ, should radically change your direction in life. It should radically change your service to Christ and His church. John Piper says this, Some of you will die in the service of Christ. Then he says this, That will not be a tragedy. Treasuring life above Christ is a tragedy. End quote. Because of our status in Christ, we can have true happiness and joy in life no matter what is happening. If you're struggling right now, might it be because you don't fully comprehend all that we are in Christ and don't fully understand what God has done in Christ? You know, I've been reading a lot about Christ and how that should drive my my preaching, a right understanding of who He is. He should be the ultimate point of every sermon because He is the ultimate point of all Scripture. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, Whatever subject I preach, I do not stop until I reach the Savior, the Lord Jesus. For in Him are all things. End quote. Well, this leads us to our second point this morning. God the Son has blessed you by readying His inheritance. Now, I changed this a little bit. If you look back, you might see that it says readying our inheritance. But I realized in my study today that I'd misinterpreted or what I believe is I misinterpreted so I changed it and I think you'll see why Paul writes in verse 11 Ephesians 1:11 Also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will Now let me start this point by showing you something or pointing out something I want to make sure that I haven't misled you. In this praise, we clearly see the involvement of the Trinity in our salvation. We clearly see the ministry of the God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is very true, but I don't think that it's the primary thrust of the passage. First off, I have pointed out on several occasions that while this has incredible implications for us as individuals, Paul's focus is more on the corporate, the church. And I think we'll recognize this in Ephesians 1, 1, 11, and 12. But I also want you to fully recognize that in this praise, the entire praise, verses 3 to 14, the primary focus, the primary focus is on the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus. You see, Christ, the Messiah, is the focus of the whole of redemptive history. We've already seen that. It all points to Him. And if we look at this praise, it all, the praise all points to Him. The Father has sent Him and has chosen to sum up all things in Him. The Spirit points back to Him and He seals us in Him. It's all about Christ. I just want you to look quickly. <coughs> at how many references Paul makes to Christ in these verses. Look at verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In who? In Christ. Look at verse 5. He, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Look at verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us, or on us, in what? In the Beloved. Well, who is the Beloved? Christ. Look at verse 7. In Him we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace. How many references there? To who? Christ. Look at verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Christ, in Him. Verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things on the earth, in Him, in Christ. Look at verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in who? In Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Verse 13. In Him you also, after hearing the message of the truth, of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of the promise. Beloved, make no mistake that while we see Paul display the Trinity in all its glory, Jesus Christ is at the center of His praise because He is at the center of all redemptive history. In other words, He's the point of all redemptive history. He is the point of everything. Listen to Ambrose. He says this, When we speak about wisdom, we are speaking about Christ. When we speak about virtue, we, virtue, we are speaking about Christ. When we speak about justice, we are speaking about Christ. When we speak about peace, we are speaking about Christ. When we speak about truth and life and redemption, we are speaking about Christ. End quote. Look at the text, verse 11. The NAS says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, I alluded to this earlier. There are a couple of ways to translate this phrase. The NASB, the ESV, and the New King James Version, which, by the way, are all very faithful translations, have translated this as, Believers, us as believers having received an inheritance. But, if you have a copy of the NASB with column notes, you might notice that it has an alternate translation. It says this, In whom also we were made a heritage. Now, I think this translation is much closer to Paul's point. But I believe that the New English Translation Bible actually gets this translation correct. In verse 11, they say, the New English Translation, the Net Bible, says this, In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession. Now here's the line of argument. And this is why I land on that being the correct, the correct translation. Starting in verse 7, we have been redeemed, purchased by Christ's blood, and forgiven our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In verse 10, He did this with a plan to make Christ head over all things, even the church. As such, we have been redeemed, we have been bought back from the slave market of sin to be an inheritance, to be a people for God's own possession. Beloved, I believe that we are the inheritance. That Christ has bought us. He has paid the price, the, uh, a price that's infinite, so that He might have a people for His own possession, so that He might have a people that would praise Him and bring glory to Him throughout all eternity. See, I, as I've said, this is not primarily about our salvation. It's about what God is doing in this world through His people, the church. 
Therefore, he gets all the glory. Just as Paul wrote in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul goes on to write, having been, this is back in Ephesians 1, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now this goes quickly. We might even be done early. We've already seen this language in previous verses. Again, God had a plan in eternity past which nothing can thwart. He has predestined us to fulfill that plan according to his purpose. And again, God causes all, all things to happen according to his will. Nothing happens outside of his power and according to his will. Now, I, let me take a moment to describe what is meant by counsel of his will. Counsel has the meaning, the word that is translated counsel has the meaning of deliberation. And it re- then refers to God's deliberation over his plan. Now, let me be clear. Who did he deliberate with? Himself. The Trinity. He didn't go outside of the Trinity. He didn't ask you or I if we wanted to be a part of this. He deliberated with himself. And therefore, the word translated will means that it's the will of God which proceeds from that deliberation. Meaning that before the foundation of the world, God made this plan within himself, and he has played out this plan according to his will, and nothing can thwart it. Verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Again, it's difficult to precisely know who Paul refers to in this verse. I think in the, in the context, though, he is referring to early Christians who gave up their entire lives to follow Christ. And they continued to follow Christ even when life seemed hopeless. James referred to these people, in James chapter 1, he referred to these people as the first fruits of a great harvest to come. Those people who had given their lives to Christ, they suffered they, they, they had turned, the, that is, from uh, the, their idolatry to serve a living and true God. You see, James and Paul both understood the hardships that they were going through. And they were concerned that they would fall away. They were concerned that they wouldn't endure. That they wouldn't endure as they followed Christ in that pagan world. As I said, they had turned from their idolatry to serve a living and true God, and they had suffered at the hands of cruel men for their faith. We can't even imagine it. We can't even fathom what they were going through. And, and Paul and James both were very, very, very concerned about them. Many of them, including most of the, the apostles, were martyred for their belief in Christ as a Messiah. They died proclaiming Christ. They went to their bloody deaths proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. They, Paul himself suffered in chains. Even as he wrote this particular letter, he writes it from prison. Yet he was convinced that God would get all the glory in his suffering and death. You see, those who were the first to hope in Christ did not suffer and die in vain. They didn't suffer and die for nothing. Beloved, you and I are part of a great harvest of the church. Was, which was built on the ministry and the blood of those who came before us. The church was built on the blood of the martyrs. And I think that's what Paul's point here is.
that God would get the glory for what was accomplished in his name by those early Christians. Beloved, we have had a great mystery revealed to us. I, think, I don't think we fully comprehend that. The Old Testament saints looked forward to Christ, looked forward to this Redeemer, Messiah. They didn't know exactly what they were looking for, but they knew He was coming. He is the focal point of all redemptive history. He, is, he has been made head over all things even the church. Beloved, He is the most precious possession you could ever enjoy. Most precious possession over and above everything. As you can see, Christ was everything for Paul. From that moment, on the road to Damascus, Paul's life was completely transformed by Christ. He gave his entire life for the sake of Christ. The question is, will you do the same? Will you do the same? Will you make Christ your all in all? Oh, it will cost you everything. So make sure, make sure, count the cost. Count the cost. But I promise you, I promise you that he's worth it. Promise you that you'll never regret it if you give your life to him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to be together. Father, thank you for your scripture, your word. Pray that it would do as you promised, that it would not return void. Pray that there would be those who truly would bow the knee to Christ today. For those who have, I pray that they would just redouble their, uh, their desire to serve you serve the church, to give their lives so that you might be given all the glory. For those who don't know you, I pray that they would turn to you, that they, they would make Christ their most prized possession over and above everything else. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take your...